Today's show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Cufflinks.com slash DVR, baby. Go there today. Get 20% off your order by using code DVR20. Remember, Cufflinks.com wants to encourage you to elevate your look when you get dressed in the morning. It helps you to feel more confident, create your individual look, and that's what it's all about. Cufflinks.com carries over 58 brands, whether it's cufflinks, tie bars, clips, money clips, messenger bags, lapel pins, ties, men's bracelets. They got it all. Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Game of Thrones... Even the sports stuff. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR and use code DVR20 today. All right, it's Monday and this is GOT, baby. That's right. We are getting ready for the impending release of Game of Thrones Season 8. And today, Game of Thrones has taken over the show. Remember to check us out at DVRpodcast.com. Email us at DVRpodcast.com and on Twitter, DVR Podcast and Podcast Winterfell. I started on Saturday with a little bit of a rewatch. I got through the entire first season by Sunday night, which says something about me and what I do with my time. And I uh, also built a good part of a Gundam. But um, I am here now to just bring that to you and give you some thoughts about Rewatching this show for the umpteenth time, I do it every year. Many I've done it multiple times in intervening time periods, depending on how long it takes for the show to come out. Um, so it's at least my what obviously seventh time, so maybe 10, 11, I don't know. I've watched some episodes, I've watched. 20 times, um, you know, I mean, I podcast about this show and I try to uh, bring a different understanding and something new to you. So that's what I actually tried to do this time. And I think I actually did find a lot of things that had not occurred to me before, believe it or not. In And what one thing that helped me was listening to Fire and Blood, because I think that that kind of history lesson made me come into this show and overwhelmingly what I took from this first season was that sense of history. And I talk about it here in what I recorded, which I have already recorded, but now you will hear after that's the magic of editing people. And, um, that so much of what is talked about in season one happened 17 years ago, right? So much of what we're seeing are old friends who have not seen each other for so long meeting again. And the true detective angle, which I'll talk about a little bit, helped me too, because it's like those time periods. So you'll hear me blab on about Game of Thrones season one here. It was a lot of fun to do. I know that uh, Entertainment Weekly released their new um, kind of preview of season eight. I'm staying away from it all. I'm trying to remain spoiler free. If that's your thing, dive in, have fun. If it, if it, if it, in, if it, uh, enlightens and, and adds to your experience, I wish you well with it. But for me, uh, I kind of really enjoy just experiencing even just the look, how somebody looks for the first time on the screen in the scene. That's important for me because that's the actual story. That's all I want to know. So we are spoiler-free, 100%. I might not even do trailers. May do one or two, you know, in the past I have, but 
you know, I'm just, I'm down with Brett this season and I think we're going spoiler free. I keep on wanting to say 93, but that tells you how old I am. <laughs> I'm spoiler free in 223. You know what I'm saying? Um, I am, and I have not looked at that and I don't know nothing and I'm going to stay that way. And I'm going to take my inferences about this coming season solely from what I've seen in the past. And uh, like I said, I hope I, I hope I can bring something a little bit new to the millions of rewatches happening, just little things I noticed here and there. So I hope that you enjoy it. Um, I'm going to simulcast this on both Daily DVR and Podcast Winterfell. And going forward, we're going to see a lot of that. So I hope you all subscribe to Daily DVR and Podcast Winterfell. Uh, Winterfell, hit them, hit them up both with the subscribe hit them with a review. And if you appreciate what we're doing, go to Patreon, go to patreon.com slash DVR and become a part of the crew. You're going to get things early, no ads, not the cufflinks.com isn't the best, yo, give it up. Um, and a lot of other great stuff, film lists. Uh, and as Game of Thrones ramps up, I do appreciate the support. I really do. So if you've ever considered just three $3 a month, Trust me, in the next three months, you're going to get a lot more than $3 a month worth. Damn, now that I'm thinking about it, I should have said 10 uh, <laughs> Come on board for $3 a month and become a patron and help support us and uh, support what we're doing. That gives me a lot more time to um, convince my wife that I'm not just sitting in the office talking to myself, that people are actually listening. So thanks a lot. Enjoy this. Because I surely did. I really saw Game of Thrones in a different way. And I think coming into this season, eight, that hugely long-term historical perspective in this world is just really important. And I think it's going to be a lot of callbacks in this final season as there were in the first season. Enjoy. All right, I want to try a little something different here since I've rewatched Game of Thrones every year, um, pretty much since season one. I've rewatched everything, all the seasons, and progressively takes longer. And I know a lot of people have done that, and I've podcasted about it, which a lot of people have done, but not everybody. You know, it's getting close, <laughs> but not everybody. So I decided to try to do something different. I was debating what to do. So I thought I'd just turn on the mic at different times when I'm watching and record and then kind of put it together. And it might sound disparate, um, but I've done the other, th I've done basically everything else. I've, we've tried to do like episode by episode and then gone back and done like chunks. So I'm just going to do it when I do it. So this is the start of that. And I'll end up editing this into a daily DVR and giving it a, another intro. So this is the second intro. <laughs> First off, one thing I want to mention once again, right off the bat, makeup. Wow. The skin on Danny, on Amelia Clark in the first season, her skin is so translucent and pale and freckled and beautiful. I mean, I am pale and freckled, so I find that to be very beautiful. I also find very dark skin to be, I, I mean, I shouldn't say I like all types of skin. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I went down the wrong road right from the start. Basically her skin looks amazing. And one thing I noticed is that I want to look at that as the time goes on, because I think that it's not only 
the makeup, it's the post-production and it's the lenses that they're using as well as the filters. So, um, there is a difference here. They're using very naturalistic lighting and filters in this season. And it's something we mentioned in the director's cut, uh, our director's series that we began and will one day continue, but my call is, uh, off having kitties and such. And, um, we, uh, talked a lot about that in the first episode and it just continues throughout this season and you see it on everyone. It's just, you can see people's skin in a way that I feel like I, I don't know. I just get the impression that as it went on, it became a little bit darker, a little bit hazy. They just were using different filters, different lenses, and the post-production processing was a little bit different. There was less of a sheen on everything. It had more of a BBC look than what I think we're at now, which is more of a film, like almost, I mean, you know, like Marvel kind of look. Everything looks very pop, right? Uh, very And very clean. Um, even though they still have amazing costumes and everything like that, it's just a little cleaner than it used to be in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong. I want to see if that's correct going forth. Um so that just struck me right away. Of course, every time I rewatch, I'm struck by the amount of times that Amelia Clark is naked and I mention her skin, but it's something to remember. And just with this whole first season, just with her, with Sansa, um, uh, with, with Kat, uh, just what, uh, then you even see, uh, Cersei too, right? I mean, just like Arya. So much of this season, and it just reminds me again of how much of this show is about women finding their place in this very male-dominated society um, and this patriarchy, which it obviously is. There's no question about that. And I just find myself uh, in this rewatch for some reason really concentrating on that this time around and really noticing that and having a lot more empathy for Sansa. Um, I must admit, you know, when the sh as the show went on, I didn't have a kid when it started. Now I do have a kid. I see them more as children in, and I see this story more real. Okay. And uh, um. I'm just seeing it with more of an emotion. I have more of a connection to the characters, of course, and I know what's going to happen. And I just see what Sansa went through. And, you know, just with the whole thing, with the fight by the river, with the butcher boy, and then having to, you know, in my memory, she said that Arya did it all. But in fact, she says, I don't remember. I don't remember. What a incredibly tough position she was put in. And then also the way that Ned talks to Arya about it and the way he talks to both of them. Um, what a great dad, but also my God, what an idiot Ned is. How many chances did he have to stop all of this? Ah, oh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> like what a fucking, mo I got, oh man, I'm cursing. I'm getting upset. What a moron Ned I mean, he had such opportunities to stop this, whether it was through Renly, through himself, through just any type of maneuvering. He didn't even try. That's the that's the thing is that, you know, 
he has basically the offers that come to him, okay, from Littlefinger and from Renly. Okay, and he could have taken those offers. The Littlefinger one, he was smart not to. Obviously, we see what happened. We don't know. Maybe Littlefinger would have somehow sided with Ned, but why would he have ever done that? It never would have been in his interest, money, power, in any way to do that. I can't conceive of a way it would have because Ned had no alliances. And that's the problem is Ned was never playing this game. He was just a guy off in Winterfell and he was thrown into this. And I see that more so in this as well. This isn't his game. I mean, this is the guy who hid John for all these years. He obviously did not want to take part in any of this. He wanted to stay in Winterfell. And I and what I had seen in other seasons as such setup with um with him and um Kat being like, let don't let him don't go, Ned, don't go. You know, initially I'm kind of seeing it in a more meta way. Okay, they have to set up that he doesn't want to go. But I'm I'm trying to be a lot more open in this rewatch and kind of like it's the first time I've watched it. I'm not trying to look for things I missed or whatever. I'm kind of just keeping a clean mind. And because we're going into the end here, so I kind of want to re-experience the whole trip, you know? Uh, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I am just noticing that that who that is who Ned was. They I'm noticing the amount of times they say 17 years ago. It's been a long time since he's seen Robert. It's been a long time since Ned has really even thought about this stuff on a daily on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis. He's not concerned. He knew he was a he knew what was going on probably with Robert too, even though he gets so angry about it uh, at the small council meeting. And he's kind of, he's very, of course, he's a very self-righteous person, um, but he, he must have known himself. And that's part of his game, right? Ned's Game of Thrones was to try to stay out of it. And he kind of went back to that, went back to that stark northern way of staying up there in the cold as Robert continually makes fun of him about. And I'm just seeing their relationship in a new way and seeing how, you know, they're about 50 years old. Sean Bean was actually about 50, he's 59 now. So this was what, nine, 10 years ago, 2011, I think, right? So he actually was that age, you know, 49, 50. Um, they, Mark Addy, they is a little older, I think. So they are, they, this has been 20 years since all of this for them. And I'm, I'm coming into this season, seeing that and seeing where we're entering it, how I forgot that, uh, Danny marries Khal Drogo in the first episode. I forgot that it was the first episode. I have to continue, even every time I watch it, it surprises me because in my mind, I've come to know of the years of her kind of drifting around with her brother and everything, you know, but we're introduced at that point. And I'm just seeing the way, the brilliance of this story from both the interpretation and of course the original, um, 
from George and from Dan and Dave. I think that this uh, season did such a great job of setting up these characters. Even just watching, I just paused this after the Barristan Selmy when he throws down his armor in front of Joffrey. And from listening to um, Fire and Blood and just kind of un- having a more of a long historical mind when watching the show. It's interesting. Like I'm watching it for the first time, but I'm also watching it in a new way in a kind of fantasy person way. Cause I'm a, like I said, I'm a sci-fi guy. I don't come, I would never have probably read game of Thrones. Even when I was, I mean, it came out, I wasn't a kid. I was, I was already out of college, but I I don't know if I would have read it, you know. I stopped like I famously like so many other people. I stopped Lord of the Rings um, <clears throat> at Tom Bam Bottle, <laughs> like so many other people I know did. Uh, but I love Lord of the Rings, but I'm just not a fantasy person. Okay, I've read so all the sci-fi greats. I've read the fantasy, not so much here and there. You know, the major ones. So th- I. I don't look at it with that such interest in the families and, you know, the, the guests, right? Like all this honor and code and stuff like that. In my world, that's the kind of stuff we destroyed in the apocalypse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and the robots took over. That's the code, baby. Like we write the code. We're jacking in, you know? Um, I came up on cyberpunk, of course, but the classics, Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov, all that, uh, Heinlein. So I'm looking at it. I'm trying to get into the fantasy mindset. That's a different, that is a different mindset. So that Barrison Selmy um, scene had a lot of resonance with me. I thought about all the time he had to serve, you know, for the Mad King and uh, for Robert. You know, I, I for some reason... I'm just, it's really, it's really, really, really important to me while watching it this season that it has been those 17 years that all these people have been putting up with Robert Stick for 17 years. I don't know why it just was never as in present in my mindset upon watching it and upon watching the actors and the writing and the direction I see that that is something that they were stressing. And for some reason, it was just lost on me. I just, in my mind, I guess I was thinking it had been, you know, I knew it had been that long, but I just, it just wasn't as important to me. I don't know. I hadn't thought about all the relationships that had formed during that time. I was so focused kind of on the Mad King and what happened then, because that's kind of the more interesting time period, you know? Um, we just came off covering True Detective and, you know, it went from 80 to 90 to 2015 and, um, a a lot, what I was talking about with Heath was, well, what happened in those intervening times? What happened, you know, from 1990 to 2015? I think that kind of helped me coming into Game of Thrones because it has that similar jump, like the import, it, it, they continually reference 17 to 20 years ago, continually, over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
the Mad King, what happened, Jamie killed. That's what Jamie and Ned talk about. And that's because all these people are coming back together after having been away really for so long that that's what they're bringing up. It's kind of like when you see your brother or sister or mom or dad and you have, you know, if you haven't seen them for a while and you live far away, which is like something like me, you find yourself concentrating on certain memories to reconnect, you know? And that's what's happening in this first season. Throughout the entire first season, it's happening. There's Because the Starks have been away from this. And a lot of these people have been away from each other. And John Aaron's death, and what happens from that is so vitally important to the whole country, the whole land, and w- that's our entry point. And I always knew that and understood that, but just continually reminding myself of that and noticing the amount of times that they're reminding us of that in reference to <clears throat> in reference to the true detective uh, episodes that we've been watching, which jump from these three time periods, the generational importance was something that I always concentrated on the kids. And I wasn't thinking about the parents, but I'm so attached to them. And as they go away (laughs) this season, it reminds me again of what an amazing job game of Thrones has done in introducing new characters and basically handing the show to them, you know? And even if it's smaller characters that just all of a sudden are there and are constantly there, you know? Um, Like Braun, he just kind of pops up and then he's just, he's there. He's like, yeah, I'll fight for him. And that scene is great. The battle scenes are so great. The sword play Man, this show is fantastic, and what a fantastic first season. Now, I've got about, I've got episodes, a little bit of episode eight, and I've got nine and ten left to go, but I wanted to jump on with some of my ideas. Um, I'll probably talk a little bit more about Rob, too. I have somehow now also... I like Rob. I never liked Rob. I always complained about him. I thought he was arrogant. I thought, what is, what was he doing? You know, he just, but now I just see the situation he was in and I see the challenges he continually has from when, when Catelyn gets back, it's such a pause. There's such a long pause <laughs> when they see each other. And I thought it was so awkward. I rewound it a couple of times and I realize it's because it it, it kind of worked out better with her not there for him. I'm noticing more little things like this as I'm watching and just how rich and deep this show is. And I do have in the back of my mind the, um, the oft complaints, the common complaints of it becoming too more stylized, it dropping character elements, um, which already I don't know if I agree with because it does move. It it moves. You know, they've always done a little bit of this, this, and this, and some things are. You know, I could nitpick some things I've noticed too. I'm really concentrating on more of a positive read because I'm feeling positive. That's what I'm thinking about. 
kind of trying to do this more stream of consciousness rather than the intense note taking I did a lot last season. And uh, I, I'm really, I, I'm feeling a great world being created around me. And that's another thing I wanted to mention is the constant, constant reference to the world itself. It's so self-referential. Okay. And I think that's so important in world building. And it's something that we don't talk about a lot. For instance, I was watching the show, The Umbrella Academy. And one of the things that I liked about the show, and I noticed right off the bat, was that within the first 10 or 15 minutes, the show had adopted a good mix of its own lingo and self-referential and real-world stuff. So, for instance, if characters were discussing something, they discussed it in reference to the this new world and and maybe a little bit – it's maybe a bit expositional, okay, but it frames their worldview. So, for instance, they're constantly saying in Game of Thrones, you know, son of, father of, when they say someone's name. They're constantly when they, you know, just the little ways they introduce my lord and things like this. Just the way the constant use of in-world language and also just even if um, it's a couple of kids playing, they make reference to uh, the winter or they make reference to uh, a white walker. They make reference – it doesn't even have to go that deep. Um, But just even saying Westeros or, you know, things like that, Kings – just using the names of places constantly, how important that is. And constantly the repetition of names as well. They did so well in this. I think I remember talking about this last year when I rewatched. I noticed this. And that's a mark of good writing too. You do need to do it, but they do a good balance of it. And as time goes on – it's like they experiment, you know what I mean? They kind of jump out the plane a little bit without the parachute, then they give you the parachute. So they introduce scenes where you're not sure who a person is. And in 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 the first couple episodes, it would say right off, someone would enter the room and they'd say, Jamie, you know, so you know exactly who that person is, right? And then as time goes on, you know, you have Cersei, instead of saying Jamie, she said, my brother, right? My dear, my dear brother, you know, my little brother, when she talks about um, Tyrion, right? That little dwarf brother or something, right? Saying something like that. There's just a constant, people don't just say Tyrion, right? There is a descriptor that, an in-world descriptor. And, And many times it references both that character and the person speaking, and I find that to be fantastic. That's a mar- the expanse does that a whole lot, right? With languages as well. Um, the heavy use of subtitles for new and and unreal, you know, made up languages, whether it's Dothraki or when they're walking through a market, or you know, it's it's that's fantastic. Just the little touches. Of course, I'm always overwhelmed by the fantastic costumes, weapons, accessories, 
um, architecture, what they choose. I remember just one scene when Littlefinger is watching, I think, Ned come up when Catelyn is at the uh, brothel and he closes the shutter and it doesn't quite close right. And he kind of just kind of pushes, he, he pushes it, but it's like he had done it a million times before because things back in the day, it's all handmade. You know what I mean? It didn't close right. And it's not, it's not like a mistake. And those kind of touches are so important. You know, just people fidgeting with their clothes, allowing people to do things like that. They seem comfortable in what they're wearing and how they're living. Um, it's just really fantastic. Uh, the um, the very stuff is so more, much more apparent to me than it ever was. Uh, how he's meeting with um, what's his name, the magistrate? You know, the guy who gives Danny the eggs, who looks just like Nick Offerman. Uh, how he, how that guy appears there, and Arya hears them, and she could tell Ned. You know, there's just little things there. His machinations, Littlefinger's machinations, seem much more apparent to me than they did uh, when watching before. Just kind of opening myself up to that and that world. Just also noticing the 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 floors. I've been looking a lot at the floor, and really interesting. When um, there's one room, the room where they kind of meet people in Winterfell, where the floor is almost like like brushed steel, but it's hay. Almost, it's just a. It's so interesting, and all just whenever they can show the ground, I find myself looking at it. That is really a mark of reality, and as a. Uh, cameraman and editor and such, you find yourself having to notice things like that, looking up and looking down in the frame, because that's often where things are missed. Um, people are always looking in the center of the frame, um, kind of center, I mean, it would be our left, center left. You can, Just like when you're reading a book, that's how you look at things. You notice things move across the screen in that way. Um, and then you, when you look at the ground, I just, and it just doesn't fail to surprise and delight me how they take notice of that. And there's like dirt on the ground or so, when somebody, you know, slaps their boots, stuff falls off of it. You know, um, it's not like on the flash where, <laughs> where, they, where they do that and they're always like, Look like they're walking out of a Gap commercial. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, the touches, the production design, everything is absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm just noticing so much and in getting into the story and just Danny's story. And it re there really are so many women in this season that are like waking up or that, that are been giving the opportunity to do that just coming of age with uh with Sansa and yeah the Sansa stuff is really that is tough you know and then you think about later what she goes through um and I just it's always been hard for me to kind of uh, um 
sympathize or empathize right with with Sansa because I've just never that kind of like I want to be the queen. I find myself a little more distant from Jon Snow because in in this season he is just so brutish. You know, he's like I can fight better than everybody. And then when he gets when he's made to be um uh, the, uh, you know, he's chosen to be what a servant, they call it. I'm a, a, a server, you know, obviously he's being trained to be the lead here, right. To be the, the head honcho. They see that he's going to be in command and Sam has to tell him that, but, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the nomenclature here, but he's so brutish. I see it through a personal lens in the same way that I was trying to investigate why I wasn't really connected to the Sansa story before. And I am now through the lens of her being a child, more so than being kind of like, I want to be the queen. Because that's still that kind of beauty pageant, I want to be the queen. And then when she says, I'll make good babies for Joffrey, I'm just like, fuck making good babies for Joffrey, do you. You know, that's kind of how I am. And I want to see her develop that. And I'm looking forward to seeing how... She does, obviously, that dream, whoa, that's going to be a rude awakening, and that's what that story is, you know? And for John, it's interesting, he is actually, uh, you know, on the other side of it. Rob is really much more emotional, I think. He tries to be tough, but he's kind of, he's a little inner softy, and it kind of, in the end, that's what's going to get him, right? But, um... John is not. John ha- John has had to hide his feelings and hide who he is. And God, the first couple episodes is just, you know, both Benjamin and Ned being like, when I see you next time, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, it's like, God, the poor kid. You know, I mean, he's the bastard. And it's not like he can hide away because he's the bastard of Ned Stark. You know, and Ned Stark isn't just, you know, um, uh, the heir uh, to Winterfell and then the Starks and so important, right? He also was took part in this amazing uprising and uprooting of the Targaryen dynasty in Westeros and, and is Robert's right-hand man and, and, and many people believe should have been king and would have been a better king. And that's another thing that I see is that we're 17 years into people if they even knew who the king was or anything because there's this one great scene when there's this um, – when there's like a, a peasant guy talking to Ned about the mountain going out and killing everybody – and this is when Ned makes his big proclamation and he's limping around. And and he doesn't even know what to call he's like, You're the what? The the hand of the what it like what is that? Like and it just goes to show you how distant the gap is, you know, um similar to when um Khaleesi has to be told, like the people in in Westeros, they just care about eating. They don't even know who the king is. You know, like, there's not even a newspaper, homie, you know, let alone your cell phone. Um, no Instagram in Westeros. No no Westagram. But that was interesting to me, um, showing that divide. That just, just seeing Ned in that position and seeing the distance there, maybe it just makes me think maybe I'm not totally correct about this, but it's 17 years later and here Ned 
is the guy who many people, maybe in the upper ranks, thought would have been a better king. And he obviously would have been a better king or a more just king. Maybe I mean, he obviously would have made mistakes as he does because he has such, he has such a strict adherence to rules and to pride and to history. And really, he's just very a very nostalgic person, I think, in many ways, which is not a great thing for a leader to be. And he, um, it's just been so long. And I just think about that and seeing him there in that position um, makes me think of that and just seeing how all these years have passed with Robert doing all the damage that he's done to this land. And it's just uh, people are, this whole thing is waking up now. And it's, it's very, it's been this this has been an interesting uh this has been an interesting rewatch. So that's my jumbled thoughts. I may come back and give some more. I think I was on my way to saying something and may have <laughs> may have thought my way out of a box, but I'll get back to it at one point, whether it was about Rob or um or maybe oh, you know what it was about that whole Jon Snow thing of seeing him grow to be a more emotional person and more in touch with who he is and finding who he is. He's had to, when you don't know, when you don't have your own history, it's hard to have a future, right? It's hard to know where to go because that foundation isn't there. You can't, you can't build upon something in your inner life each and every day. And, and John, I think, is kind of brutish in a way and has concentrated on all this, I'm a warrior, I'm a battler, you know, I can fight better than anyone. And Sam's like, yeah, but like, you know, they see better in you than that. And I think that that's kind of John's thing, right? It makes me understand that more. That like Sansa's thing and John's thing is understanding that they are actually better than what they think they are. Sansa is better than and smarter and more together and aware and tougher than she ever thought she was. And John is more emotionally aware, more open, more sensitive, more nuanced than he ever thought he was and has to become that. Uh, it becomes a better leader, as does Sansa have to be a leader. And I think in season eight, we're going to see a lot of that. And I'm looking forward to that because I don't need to see Sansa. The whole thing of trying to set up a thing where Sansa is going to fight for against John for Winterfell or against Danny or whatever, it was just boring to me. Because I felt that that's just putting her in a hole. And I didn't, I don't know if I was super happy. There's going to be things that I'm not going to be super happy with with her character because I don't think they did a great job with her. Um, but, and with John though, I mean, I can see that opening that they did. And obviously, John is the star of the show, let's be honest here. And that's not as, a, as apparent to me watching this in season one. When I listened back to that first episode when we were talking about Game of Thrones, which maybe I'll throw back on again, right? Do it every year. Um, I can remember us kind of saying, John is the, come on, this guy's going to be the star of the show. And obviously we were right. And he is the star of the show now, but you know, who knows what's going to happen. All right. So maybe I'll be back after the next two episodes. And uh, this was kind of fun.
All right, let's take a quick break, mid-ad break here. Appreciate all you listening to my ramblings. I probably just jammed this in in between a thought or two that I had about uh, John or Sansa or something. And um, it's been a lot of fun here. I just want to give a shout out to Cufflinks.com. Head over to Cufflinks.com slash DVR. Use code DVR20 and get 20% off your order no strings attached, <laughs> no minimum. You could get a hand of the king pin, a hand of the queen pin. They've got so much great Game of Thrones items over at cufflinks.com. It's going to blow your mind. And let me tell you something. This is not like knockoff, uh, unlicensed. This is official. These cufflinks are like thick. They weigh heavy in your hand. They feel like some kind of object from the world of Game of Thrones. That's the great thing about cufflinks.com. Each one of the things that they sell, each one of the products feels like it's from the world that it should inhabit, right? So go ahead over to cufflinks.com slash DVR and use code DVR20 to get 20% off. Thank you, Cufflinks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, so I'm coming back here. I paused it there and I went and I watched, um, let's see, I watched episodes nine and 10 of season one. And um, I have a few notes here that I wanted to go over that I kind of emailed to myself. One of the first ones is I'm noticing here we're getting towards the end of the season and the War of the Five Kings has begun and how subtly it begins. This is something that has perplexed, slightly annoyed me, but now I appreciate. There's no point in this show in which someone turns to another person and says, hey, the War of the Five Kings just started. But in a lot of TV shows, there are those expositional moments. And for a show that has sometimes been accused of being expositional, I find that in this first season, I notice how little it really is. It's historical, but expositional as to the actual content of what is happening in the show, of the plot, it really, they're often, they're letting you go. And as the season goes on, they trust you more and more. And that's just really good writing and really good planning. And it just shows how they can plan things like this when they have the basis of such a wonderful, rich story from the creator, George himself, that they can rely on, right? It allows them to do things like that and, and trust an audience earlier because it just kind of happens. Now, of course, if you're paying attention, you understand the machinations, both political, personal, and just where people are, right? Physical, location-wise, that something as big is happening or is going to happen. And it's spoken of, but then when it finally happens, um, it's just really super interesting, because you're seeing that so many of these people are kind of out of their game. You know, they're, it's again, this historical perspective, especially I see the interplay between Kat and Rob. And in the past, whereas I saw them as two people really a bit aimless without Ned, right? Trying their hardest but not succeeding. I now kind of have a new appreciation for Rob 
And I'm watching this season and I'm like, why is he letting his mom talk to him like that? <laughs> like, he's like, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't even mean in terms of, you know, the dad is gone. So the male heir must take over though. That was the way it was then. And he'd have every right to act that way within the confines of this story. And it shows that kind of Rob, Rob had this soft place in him that prevented him, that led to his eventual death and uh, Catelyn as well. And for Catelyn, it was, I just, you know, I didn't really get it when they're looking, when they're standing uh, over there and they're talking about um, Walter Frey and uh, Walter Frey. And she's like, you know, we might have to give up your daughter, your your sister, or blah blah blah, or this or that, you know. And he's kind of like, well, we have to see, you know. She convinces him to let her go in there, um, which I think was a mistake from the beginning, right? Uh, it's kind of like letting your mommy go and take care of your business for you. And I I don't know why I didn't see it this way before because I guess I was just the some of the thing about game of thrones is that when you're looking at it you do accept certain things as being in world rules and i guess i did but upon seeing this again i'm just i don't know i feel like we could do a whole podcast about that now and i want to ask other people what they think about it because i just see that cat kind of undermined him at every turn and in, in the beginning i kind of you know when i i don't know why it took me 18 times of watching it to kind of see that when in the beginning I kind of felt like, you know, maybe Rob needs her help, you know, but now I'm looking, I'm like, what? Like, look at where we have John and Danny now in their age. And then it's like kind of Rob was that older guy, you know, I think he wasn't as old as they are now. Right. But, um, it just, I just, the whole thing about she goes in there and comes out and tells him he's marrying this. Was that a normal occurrence like that? I just see if Rob is kind of trying to be the leader here, right? And be the general having his mommy go in there. It was just, you know, I don't know. It was just interesting to me. Um, speaking of that right after they have the scene where um, Rob agrees to marry Frey's daughter and all that kind of stuff, right? Is the great speech about love is the death of duty between John and the maester uh, Targaryen. Um, and uh, it's so interesting to me. They did a lot of this in this first season too. There's so much foreshadowing. Love is the death of duty. Well, yeah, love does this whole marriage thing obviously leads to the red wedding and this scene comes directly after it. Uh, like they cut from Rob's face to this conversation and it's Jon Snow and here we have Jon and Danny now, right? Love is the death of duty. So a lot of foreshadowing here. They, they could foreshadow things way in advance when they had this story. Um, Another thing I noticed that I hadn't mentioned earlier is when Robert says uh, to uh, says to Cersei when the whole butcher boy incident happens with Joffrey and Sansa and Arya, he said and Cersei says we should you know she needs to be punished and and Robert says to Cersei what should I do whip her through the streets naked? So that was kind of crazy, right? 
And I mean, I know that there's a lot more of that stuff hidden in there for the book readers probably noticed that the first time around, but I thought that there, I noticed a couple other things like that too. Um, it never occurred to me in the final episode that when Podrick and Arya are leaving for the wall together, that that's Robert and Ned's kids. That was kind of sweet and sentimental. And then I realized they're both dead. <laughs> so, but it was a very direct handoff to the next generation, which is what this whole season is about. Uh, what this whole, basically this whole story is about, right? And um, it just never occurred to me before. I mean, I knew that's what they were, but the significance of these two men having been through so much together, right? And and the war, um, then Robert's ruling all that time, Ned kind of sequestering himself up at Winterfell, and then maybe some far off dream that at some point their children could even know each other. You know, and then this is the way in which it happens. That was just, uh, that was kind of like a weird thing for me. Um, this was an interesting thing that it's John, uh, tr- when John runs away from the wall and in the, f- in the final episode, episode 10, and then, you know, Sam and all the guys bring him back. And then he has this big conversation with Mormont. And Mormont has to convince him, don't play at war with your brother. Don't play these little man political games. The biggest war is, is beyond the wall and is the White Walkers. And, we've, and he kind of outlines, we saw two men, two blue with, with blue eyes and another report. And of course, John, a, a white, you know, an early proto I'm going to call it a proto white um, attacks Mormont and John throws the fire on him. And it's kind of funny how they change the makeup. We have to accept that though. It's life. It happens. Um, And uh, we know that they've already seen that too, but still John's not even convinced. Right. And then when we think about later on, when John spends like two seasons running around telling everybody, wake up, the White Walkers are coming, right? And he's still doing it you know, with Cersei, like, we got to go get one and bring it back to Cersei so she believes us. Um, and then it's like he was on the other side here. So it's later, it's John giving that same speech to everyone. And I thought that that was kind of cool. Also, how quickly Mormont takes to John so quickly. I mean, I know they have to... One of the things I'm realizing when watching this season too, and I've talked about it before, is um, the show always has kind of been a check-in, right? Like, okay, so for instance, I mentioned it before, a show like Better Call Saul. When one scene happens, it's reliable if it's within the same people or so that we're in you know, kind of the same time and whatever mood they're in or whatever they're reacting to is in reference to something we just recently saw, right? It it follows, but in game of Thrones, that's not what happens. Time of time expands so fast and they don't have any other choice, but to do it. And it just, at certain times they have a lighter touch. It's difficult. And you can see the way they struggle with it. You know, Danny gets pregnant so quickly. You know, there's like a 
three scenes and she's, you know, she's supposed to have this baby, you know? Um, so it's really, I just, I just forgive it. So I can understand why Mormont maybe John's been already up there a while, you know, they can, they develop, even if it's a month, you can develop a, a bond with someone if you're up there at a wall. Right. Um, but I just thought it was interesting to me how early, and I know he gives him the sword because he saves him, but it's just a little, little quick. Um, okay. So it never occurred to me that Danny gets her confidence in herself and her powers. Like the reason why she burns herself in the fire with the dragon eggs, Drogo and Mary Mastor are, is because that Mastur had this, if I'm pronouncing it, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, had showed her that magic was real. That never really sunk into me before. I just thought that Danny was desperate at the, at the end of it all. But now I see through watching that maybe closer than I had watched it before that Danny thinks magic is something that her brother talked about. I don't think she really believes in the dragons. I don't think she really has much confidence in herself at all, you know, and you can see that from the way her brother treats her in the first scene we're introduced to her. And I, it's just interesting to me that it takes seeing that magic, losing her kid, like what happens with the horse and called Drogo, um, that that's what kind of gives her the idea that magic can work. And she, yeah, she's desperate. She's, you know, you know, the Kalisar has left her. She's all alone. All she's got is Jorah friend zone. And she's like, yo, what up? I mean, what am I going to do? And then she's like, screw it. Like a quite quickly later, we just go to the scene and they're putting the eggs in by call Drogo She's ready to get naked and jump in that fire, you know? And I forgot too, that it takes like a night for it to happen, that they wake up the next morning and she's in there. So what happened at that in, during that night? It's interesting. I also wonder, is it, is it the burning of the witch and Khal Drogo and the egg that made the eggs hatch this time? You know, I mean, we'll never know. But there's probably some person who's into the the magic stuff that can explain to me that they need to add her into the fire, you know? Because if you think about it, there's really three people and three eggs that went into that fire. Does that say anything about the dragons? Did I just happen upon a theory of why, you know, one dragon becomes a white dragon, you know, a dead dragon? Why is that? Was that, is that foreshadowing because the witch was never, you know, she was against Danny and, and Drogo. It was always like within their midst. Interesting. I don't know, but I'd never noticed that before that it was that kind of, that's the most magical thing that happens in the whole season. And that is kind of interesting as well. I mean, I'm always surprised at how they snuck it in. And we've talked about that a lot before. The last thing I want to mention before I go today is nudity. Um, I, I knew going into this season, I wanted to say to myself, you know, there's so much, there's so, 
there's so much less nudity now in Game of Thrones. I mean, I think sometimes we all forget how prevalent everybody talking and writing and tweeting and whatever Facebooking about the nudity in Game of Thrones, especially season one. And so I said, I really want to pay attention to it. And it's because I would say, is this like, was it too much? And my final um, assessment is no, it wasn't. There should have been more male nudity because the the female nudity that was present in the show was actually, I thought, had a lot to do with the plot and said a lot thematically, especially Danny, the way she's introduced naked, her brother's like fondling her. She's such an object. She then becomes that naked object in the beginning to call Drogo. And then when she's learning how to please him, right? But then at the end, when she stands there naked with the dragons, it is, she has taken control of her body, herself, her power, her magic. And I just think it makes a perfectly, it, it just totally worked. Now past that, we didn't really, I don't really ever think we needed to see Danny naked again. But in this season, it totally worked. Because I when I look at her story, um, even with Dario, that was such a just a thing that she did. You know, it's not like it wasn't a part of her character. Whereas in this season, it very much was. Because it's obvious that her brother had been raping her. And I mean, I know I don't know if that's in the book or whatever, but it's just so obvious. Or just basically using her in any way he wanted or maybe letting other people use her. You know, he obviously just sells her off, gives her to call Drogo. And then when she's so scared, he's like, do him good or something, you know? So it's just, I think that that made sense. Then I was looking at the Roz stuff. Roz hears everything. Littlefinger, Maester Lumen, Theon, Tyrion. She is a present when these all these things are happening, whether this pays off in the end, I want to talk about as I get into season two. But it surprised me that every time I look, I, I, I was like, that's Roz again. It kept on being her. And I, I didn't realize what a strong character she was in this season and the significance of the kind of, of the silent of the listener in this show. The person who listens. And in a way, I almost feel as though it's kind of foreshadowing for Tywin, the letter writing, just an overall thematic notion that it's not always in the doing. Sometimes it's in the, the, the listening and the noticing and the observing. That is just as important, right, in this Game of Thrones. So I thought that that Roz stuff... Um, was uh, the little finger one I will can I will think that I will say that was a little bit much only because his speech was not as great as I remember it you know when the girls are making out um so that was a little but I don't I don't know I just felt like it really made sense you know and I think something you know adults get nude and they did add a lot more male nudity and you did get to see um a Hodor schlong and that's a, that was pretty big. So there you go. You know, I heard people like that. So there you go. You got a big one. <laughs> that makes up for it a little bit. But um, 
I do think that that adds realism, especially in a world like this, where I think just smells, nudity, bodies, thing. it was just, you know, we've gotten a little bit away from that as time goes on. Like, a, um, like I was saying about the floors, there's so much visceralness I see in this season that they may have gotten away from, but it happens, you know, the production gets better and somebody comes along and fixes, you know, starts doing something, making it look a little bit nicer. But as I, as it goes on, I want to pay more attention to that. So um, that's, I think that's all I got. I mean, look, Ned getting the head cut off, that comes out of nowhere. I forgot how that just comes out of nowhere. Like they're just doing other scenes and you're like, oh, look, it's boop. Oh, and then all of a sudden Arya's walking along, right? She's got a bird in her hand and, and she's just looking for food. And, you're, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's Arya because you haven't seen her for a while. And you're like, oh, I hope she's okay. And then they're like, oh, Rush, something's there. Oh, everybody's running through the streets. And you're like, what's happening? And then Ned's dead. And it, oh, man. I still, and I, also the way that nobody wanted him to do that. For sh- for sure, you see it on Littlefinger's face, <laughs> you see it on Varys' face, Cersei's face. Everybody is like, "No," and you know what I mean. And he's like, "Give me his head." And the Inland Payne is the only one who's like, "Yeah, man, I'm doing it." You know, well, it doesn't really do anything. It just has that crazy face. So I thought that that was um, that still that shocked me. That really shocked me. And just the placing within the structure of the story was so smooth. It was really smooth. Just like The Red Wedding is, too. They hit you with some interesting scenes before and kind of throw you off a little bit. And then the scene happens. But um, overall, I loved rewatching this scene. This may have been my favorite rewatch yet. So I hope season two is going to be awesome. I'll be back with more Game of Thrones. I don't know. You all better watch out. This might just become a Game of Thrones podcast. I'm going to talk so much Game of Thrones, but I got other things to talk about. I want to give a quick shout out to, let's see, John, Brett, Andy, uh, Kellum, Jenny, all um, great, of course, uh, patrons of the show. Wait, I was saying it because I got another one. Uh, oh, this was a different email. Okay. All gave me great feedback on what I should be doing with podcast Winterfell. And I'd like to hear from you all too. You can email dvrpodcast at gmail.com or podcast Winterfell at gmail.com and tell me what you want out of podcast Winterfell. Cause Heath and I are definitely doing a show and Tim is definitely doing the call in show. Other than that, we're not sure. So I think I'm going to do an initial reaction, but I'm not sure. I want to. I think I do want to do it. But they all gave me some great ideas. Thank you to them. And um, I'm going to uh, get into those. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. I know this is a late release today, but um, had a lot going on. And uh, just glad I could be with you today, baby. So have a great night, and I'll see you all very soon. Peace.